Well, good morning, church. I'll ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And as you do so, I want to make a comment that I've certainly made before, but I think it's worth repeating. We have this weird relationship with New Testament figures where I think because of the brilliant light shed by Christ and Him being revealed in the the Scriptures in the New Testament, it's very difficult for us to look at someone like Mary, someone like Peter, uh, someone like John the Baptist, and see them kind of in the same way that we see Old Testament figures. And we have no problem looking at King David, looking at Solomon and all of his splendor, looking at Abraham, looking at Moses, looking at Noah, and seeing them as the kind of people that our kids could have an action figure of and being excited about that. But once we get to the New Testament, we, we don't have that same perspective. But we're going to get to Mark chapter 6, but hear these words this morning of, about what Jesus uh, gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, talking about John the Baptist. This is from Matthew chapter 11. It says, um, when these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in your word, you tell us that John the Baptist was a remarkable individual. He is not your son. He is not the Messiah. Yet your son, the Messiah, said that there was no one born among women who was his equal. And this morning, as we look to the end of his life, and we look to his death, and we hear about what he was doing, Use that to convict us. Use that to reveal something about what it means to follow you, what it means to have a prophetic ministry, what it means to have courage and boldness for the sake of truth. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. John the Baptist is just one example of someone who did not have it easy for the sake of Christ. John the Baptist is, is, some would say, is the first martyr, but of course there's, there's no one recording, there's no uh, canonical record of who the first martyr is. Interestingly enough, uh, it was commented by some of the early church fathers that those infants that were killed in, in um, the, the uh, kill, slaughter of the innocents by Herod would have been the first martyrs because they were killed because of the arrival of Christ. Of course, Stephen in the book of Acts is directly killed because of his actions. But Stephen and John and so countless others throughout the ages, beginning in the time of the New Testament and certainly going through the early church fathers, the Middle Ages, up until the Reformation and the Puritan Age, and even today around the world, there are countless individuals who are suffering because they have spoken up for righteousness, righteousness' sake. I think some of the most remarkable things that we can communicate to our children are these stories about how people, because of their conviction and because of courage that comes from the Holy Spirit, stand up and say something for truth's sake, even though they know that the sword or the gallows or the guillotine awaits someone speaking for the sake of truth. This is the ministry of John the Baptist, but this is actually the ministry of so many today 
for all of the things that we could talk about and for all the talking points that certain news stations and certain Christian media outlets would say regarding the nature of the persecution that we are under, we cannot forget that there is capital P persecution going on around the world where if someone does say something regarding the Bible, regarding the nature of their faith, regarding Jesus Christ and even that name itself, the persecution that would come would come swiftly, and it would not be an economic persecution. It would not be a social persecution. It would be a, a persecution that would be at the end of a rifle. Again, that does not diminish the circumstances that we're in and the call that has been given to us regarding speaking out and speaking to truth. But it does give us a somber reminder that this is the suffering that was promised by Christ to his disciples. And it's something that in our text this morning, we see starkly in John the Baptist and the end of his life. So once again, we see this in Mark chapter 6. Last week, the beginning of the chapter saw the disciples being commissioned. So this is not the great commission, but it's a pretty good commission. They are sent out and they're sent to preach a gospel, a gospel of repentance, and they're sent out to do this in the power of the Spirit, in reliance upon the Father. And so they go out, and, and in the, after that is recorded for us, we immediately hear about how when they were going out and doing these things, in verse 13, verse 14 picks up, and it says, And King Herod heard it, for his name had become well known. For his name had become well known. The people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, had risen. So what's going on here? So the disciples go out. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're preaching this, this gospel of repentance, this message of repentance. And this, the word of this gets back to Herod. Now, before we get to exactly what's happening, I think it's important to establish who Herod is. There are no less than four Herods that we encounter in Scripture. This is more of a title. It is more, it is, is the Herodian dynasty is a, a, a group of rulers in this part of this world, this part of Palestine at this time. This Herod is a different Herod than we think about when we think about the Christmas story. This is Herod Antipas, or Antipas, or I don't know, you could probably pronounce it three or four other ways. But Herod Antipas, he is one of the rulers that we encounter in the New Testament. But he is an interesting fellow because he is uh, the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is our Christmas story Herod, right? Herod the Great had ten wives. So he wasn't that great in the grand scheme of things. But Herod Antipas was the son of his fourth wife. Now... This is an important thing for the story. Herodias, and again, the names just become very difficult to keep track of as we go through this. Herodias is the woman that he is married to in our text. But he was the wife of Herod Philip, who was the son of the third wife of Herod the Great. So the family tree is very much intermingled at this point. And this is, of course, the, the, the point of the conflict here and the point of the, the, the contest that, that, that John is bringing up. There is this Herod the Great had multiple children, and one of the sons took the wife of one of the other sons, but they were half-brothers. Doesn't make it better, but that's the issue that we have here. So this is who Herod is. Herod is not a good man. Herod is not a good man, both from his lifestyle and also his lifestyle choice here with having this relationship with the ex-wife of his half-brother. So this is who Herod is. But the way that we introduce to Herod is interesting because Herod, a king, a governor would probably be more of an appropriate title for him, is startled and shocked because John made an impact. So John made an impact. That's what we see. John the Baptist made an impact such that when he hears that, that these disciples of this man Jesus are going out and teaching and healing and casting out demons, 
His immediate thought is, this man that I beheaded has come back from the dead, and I'm a little bit concerned about it. Now, if you are a king, if you are a ruler, if you are some uh, figure of authority, and you execute judgment on someone by execution, not to spoil the story, but that's what happens to John here at the end, and immediately you get concerned that his ghost is haunting you, that says something about your character. That says something about how certain you are of your authority. Because the immediate response of Herod is, oh no, I did something wrong to someone good, and now I am going to face the consequences. Herod thought that John the Baptist rose from the dead and that these things are at work in, his, in, in Christ and his disciples. But it's interesting here that, that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark gives some of the other uh, uh, examples of the impact that John had because other people were saying other things. They're saying he is Elijah, which of course, as we just read in Matthew chapter 11, is precisely who he is. He came in as the... Um, in the office of Elijah, this ultimate, this penultimate prophet before the Messiah. Jesus straight up says that John is Elijah. So you can put that into your, your eschatological chart if you're waiting for Elijah to come, that he's already come and he was John the Baptist, okay? So filter that into your late great planet Earth, if you will. And others were saying in verse 15, 15 he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, which was true. So Verse 16, but when Herod heard it, heard of these miraculous things happening, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded has risen. So once again, John made such an impact on Herod, made such an impact on the royal court, that even after he was dead and buried, taken by his, his followers and buried, that Herod's immediate concern when something miraculous and remarkable was happening in the area was, oh no, this man that I beheaded, this man that was different, this man that had the courage to stand up to me is back from the dead. That's quite the impact made by John the Baptist. And so now in verse 7, we get a flashback. The flashback is this. It says, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Once again, Herod Antipas, the Herod of our story, married the wife of his half-brother, Philip, and her name is Herodias, to make things super clear for us. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he was arrested because he was saying, it's not right to marry your half-brother's wife. That's what it comes down to. For Herod, uh, excuse me, now, now 19th, now Herodias was holding a grudge against him and was wanting to put him to death and was not able. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he was keeping him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. This is a remarkable kind of character study of Herodias, of Herod, and John. So, so Herod wanted to marry Herodias, even though it was, an, it was a unauthorized, bad family situation, but they had enough tension in their relationship that Herodias wanted John dead, but Herod didn't want to kill John. So do you see this? They wanted to be together enough, but there was, there was enough tension that the guy who was criticizing his wife, he said, I don't want to kill him. Why is that? Because I know there's something special about him. It's remarkable. So Herod is seeing that that there's something special about what John is saying, there's something special about who John is, but it's not special enough to really change. I don't want to send Herodias away, I don't want to repent from what I'm doing, but I also know that if I kill him, it's not going to go well for me, even though Herodias is telling me to do this. This is the kind of conflict that sin brings. This is the kind of difficult situation where, and, and, and really inconsistent uh, lifestyle that comes from sin where you know you shouldn't do something, but you really want to do something, and it's something that happens to us, and it's something that happens to kings, and it's something that happens to everyone. But it's interesting here, we see at the end of verse 20, and when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he, was, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And this is, this is one of the amazing things, church, and, and not to go out on a tangent or down a rabbit trail, but we ought to be interesting, 
What we have to share ought to be interesting. Someone might disagree completely, but with intellectual honesty, people ought to at least be interested. Why should they be interested? Not because we're saying something outlandish, not because we are, we're hyper-charismatic and they, have, they, they, they can't help but listen to us, but because what we're saying has actual implications for life, for the world, and for understanding what goes beyond these things. That was John's message. John had a consistent message of who God was and what that meant for Herod and what that meant for the people that came out in the wilderness. John's message was so important and so remarkable that Herod, even when he was hearing John inevitably start each conversation and end each conversation and make plenty of inferences and sly remarks throughout the course of their conversation about how Herod was living in sin, that Herod still wanted to listen to him. There ought to be something endearing about the Christian message. There ought to be something endearing about us as Christians. The word that's used, I would say, way too frequently over the last five or ten years is winsome. That we ought to have this something about us where, where people just, just are, are, are drawn to hear what we have to say. I don't think I'm necessarily a winsome person. One of the, the categories that, that uh, um, has, I think, been appropriately applied to this idea of winsome is that you can be so winsome that you never get around to winning some. Because there has to be a little bit of punch to your message. There has to be a little bit of substance to your message. You can't just be uh, happy and flowery all the time. And John the Baptist certainly wasn't, wasn't that. I mean, the, there's the whole camel skin, uh, the whole locust consumption, all of those things. It made him an interesting character, but the content of his message, even while he was in prison, was such that Herod went and listened to him even though he knew that John was going to tell him things about Herod himself that he didn't like. It's a remarkable picture of a message and a man that is so on, 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 on message and so on focus that even in spite of a difficult situation, he made an impact on Herod. And what was the nature of this message? It was, the, it was repentance. John preached repentance. So, of course, the first time we met John in, in the Gospel of Mark, and the first time we hear meet him in, well, of course, we meet him first in the womb of his mother, but once he's out in ministry, when we meet him, this is his message. It's a message of repentance and a baptism of repentance in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So, John had a message, but it wasn't necessarily the message of the Gospel that we have today. So this is clear. Our message, our good news, is a message of repentance and in faith of what has come. John's message is a message of repentance in preparation or anticipation for what was to come. So this is the big difference between our ministry, our commissioning, our preaching, our prophetic role in the culture, and John's. John's was one of repentance and anticipation. Ours is one of repentance in faith of what has come. But here's the interesting thing, church. This is what we see John do. John holds a king accountable to God's law. John holds a king accountable to God's law. He says, it says in verse 18, for John has been saying, had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Who makes the law? In, it, it, I mean, oftentimes in our culture today, but certainly in this culture, who made the law? Who was the one who could pick with the way things go? You look throughout history, whether it has to do with our own history over the last few decades or certainly in the past few centuries since our country's founding. You look in other cultures, you look in medieval Europe, you look all the way back, of course, to, to, to the contemporary cultures for um, biblical times, particularly the Roman Empire. Who made the law? It was the king. What the king said went. In fact, this uh, led to uh, uh, an incredibly important work by Samuel Rutherford, uh, a, a Puritan and a reformer, who, who wrote the, the, the book called Lex Rex, which is The Law is King, and inverting this, this, this concept that the, the, the king is the one who makes the law, and, and actually laying the ground, along with many others outside of the church, for what became our system of government, which is, no, 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 the law is king. The king is simply a steward of the law. But in this culture, 
in, in, in this time, and unfortunately for so many other cultures in the world, it is an inverse of this, where the idea that the king is the one who makes the law. So the king can do this on a Tuesday, and then on a Thursday, if a whim changes, then he can do something else. We see this for, for people who are Anglophiles and, and are very familiar with, with uh, um, England in the 17th and 18th century, just how the laws would change, the church would change to accommodate itself to who wanted to have a marriage and who wanted to have a marriage annulled. In fact, that was one of the reasons why the church went in England from being Catholic to being the Church of England, so that you could more easily annul your marriages. There's so much that we could say about this, but what we see in verse 18, once again, in the ministry of John, is that John held a king accountable to a higher law. He held a king accountable to God's law. John didn't have this perspective that, well, there's the secular state, and then there's the church. And until Herod walks into the building, until Herod sits in the pew, I have no right and no one has any right to hold him accountable to God's law. This is this great myth of the separation of church and state that we have in our culture and that we then also kind of assume should exist in other cultures today and throughout time. Is Herod only accountable for marrying the right person if he is following God's law, or if he's, if he's submitting himself to God's law? Are we only uh, accountable for not lying, not stealing, not coveting, not creating idols if we submit to God's law? No, it's clear. God's law is a law that's for all people. God holds all people equally accountable, innocence or guilt, irrespective of if their names are on the roll of a church or not. God's law is the law. It is the law that Paul tells us about in Romans that all are held accountable to and all fall short of. Herod, just because of his title, just because of his ethnicity, just because of the zip code where his palace was, did not get a pass on having proper relationships in the marital bed. And John brought this truth to bear. John held a king accountable to God's law, but more importantly, John held an unbeliever accountable to God's law. John didn't say, before I talk to you about you and Herodias, I want you to say this prayer after me. And once you accept Jesus in your heart, then we can talk about getting, your relation, getting this relationship taken care of. That would have been a very bizarre prayer considering that Christ was still walking around and hadn't died on the cross, but that's completely aside the point because that's not what John did. In preaching a, in, in preaching a message of repentance, John said, God has a standard for behavior. You are not conforming to that standard of behavior. This bare minimum, is a barrier between you and your creator. You, as a violator of his law, need to get that figured out because a day of reckoning is coming. Again, John's message was run of repentance and anticipation, knowing that Christ was going about his ministry. He was within a few years of going to the cross, going from a, a few years from a full realization of what the implications of the kingdom of God were. John was preaching a message of repentance so that hearts would be softened, hearts would be ready, hearts would be conformed to this anticipation of the coming of the gospel. And John didn't care if it was some random person that came to him in the wilderness or if it was the king himself. John holds a king accountable to God's law, and John holds an unbeliever accountable to God's law. It's remarkable fortitude. I mean, to be honest, it's very easy to stand up here and say this to you guys. You guys chose to be here, I, I would assume. No one seems to be held in place by a spouse or by a parent at this point, which is good. It's very easy in this place to say that. But do we have the fortitude to say something like this? a message of repentance, and again, a message of faith now, outside of this place. But let's start somewhere a lot harder in some sense. It might be easy for us to wait in our line at the selectmen meeting to get up and say something 
about how we significantly disagree about why something is happening in our town or in our state because it runs contrary to God's revealed law. That takes a lot of fortitude. It's not an easy thing to do. We might get fired up when we're watching a clip on YouTube or we're watching something on the news about somebody who, who does that because we are passionate in that moment. But as we drive to that building to do that ourselves, we begin to kind of lose our desire to stand up in front of people and say something. But just to make it easier, do you have the fortitude to say something like that to your child? Do you have the fortitude to say something about God's law to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your brother, to your parent? That makes it a lot more personal. There's a certain impersonal nature, nature about going to a selectman's meeting or walking down into, to, to, or go walking up to Concord and, and knocking on someone's door and saying, I think what you're doing is immoral and wrong and you should change it. And I'm a, I'm a voter, so you better listen to me. There's something impersonal about that. But it's very personal when it's the person that you know, that you see, that you have a relationship with. It might not cost you your head like John did John had happened to him here, but it might cost you a lot. I imagine that beheading was a rather quick endeavor. But the discomfort that comes with speaking about God's law and how we are all accountable to it, to someone that we are in close relationship with, may have implications that are going to rear their ugly head at the next family gathering, at Easter, at Thanksgiving, at Christmas. But once more, I want to make sure that we remember, John did this in such a way that Herod wanted to be around him. So this isn't put on the, sign, the sandwich board, get the bell, walk to your neighbor's house, say, the end is near, repent. They might like that. So I don't want to take that off the table. If you think that would be a helpful way to communicate, then by all means. But notice, again, John is, John's message is not one of disenfranchising people and, and, and breaking relationship. His message was such that he was able to tell somebody that their life was wrong, but that person still wanted to be around them. That takes discernment. That takes prayer. That takes, it, it's really easy to throw a Molotov cocktail into a room and walk out saying, I just shared the gospel. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to have grace and truth. It takes wisdom, it takes courage, it takes fortitude, but it takes love for people. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So much good stuff there regarding this idea. We're being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That means to be wise, to be... To be to plan, to think about things, to, to prepare yourself, certainly through, through, through reading and conversation and devotion, but also through prayer. And also to have that courage that if, if you've done those things, if you've had that, that, that time of prayer, if you've had conversations, if you've gone to those closest to you saying, I'm going to have a difficult conversation with my child, with my parent, with my neighbor, with my town, please be in prayer with me. That, that we know if we've had that preparation, if we've had that time, if we've had that prayer, then what does God promise? What does Christ himself promise to his disciples? He says, do not worry about what you are going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. This is where we have, what does that sound like? That sounds like the, the, the ministry of a prophet. Now, we don't have that forthtelling prophetic ministry, you know, I... You know, I have, a, I have a word from God that, you know, put your money on this team today at 4.30 and this team at 8 o'clock. I don't have that, and I don't think he would give us betting lines even if we did. 
But the prophetic ministry, and you certainly look back at the Old Testament, the prophetic ministry was about this thing's going to happen now or this thing's going to happen in five years or 500 years. But more often than not, the prophetic ministry was this is God's law. This is where you are falling short. That's the prophetic ministry. And that's something that we can, we can do. But shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We don't do this like bulls in china shops. We don't do this trying to, to, to you know, um, destroy and take names later. We do this as innocent as doves. And so as a church, we ought to be known for, for, for having fortitude to say things that need to be said. But we also, as a church, should be known for love. I think this is, this is the tension, church. This, this is what it comes down to. I know it's a minute detail, but I think we, we, we need to grab onto it because it's indicative of a mentality and a lifestyle and a ministry that we see Christ have. But the fact that John the Baptist, and I've said it four or five times already, that he was telling Herod that he was wrong, yet Herod still wanted to be with him. That's what we ought to aim for. A message of repentance and faith, but doing it in love. A message of truth, but done with grace. John preached repentance. It got him in trouble, but he did it because it was what needed to be done. So now we get to the, the, the crux of the story itself, which is almost kind of a, a, a side note, like a, like a, a, um, a historical uh, setting for, the, for, for John's ministry in verse 21. And a strategic day came. And it's strategic for Herodias, you'll see. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his great men and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. It's interesting that the language is remarkably similar to the language of Christ's burial. The disciples came and took the body. They went and laid it in a tomb. And it's intentional. Now, you could say, well, what else would someone do? But for all of the burials, all of the deaths, all the executions in Scripture, it's interesting that we have these parallels between the ministry of John and the ministry of Christ. I think it goes back to what we read in Matthew earlier, that no man and woman was like John the Baptist. But to what do we see here? We see a few things. We see, first of all, that Herod is a man of very questionable morals and questionable decision-making, particularly his integrity and, and his strength. He didn't want to do this, but he felt like he had to do it because he made this foolish oath, this foolish vow, and he didn't want to look like he was going back on this in front of his guests. He didn't want to kill a man that he knew to be holy, that he knew to be righteous, that he knew to have something going for him, but he also didn't want to look silly at his party and what won out in that situation. I think the picture that we have of, of, of Herod Antipas in this passage is a man of, of, of weak constitution, is a man of, of, of great power, but very little strength. And John is the foil. John is the strong one in prison. John is the, the, the powerful one who is in chains. I think we're meant to see this dichotomy, and ultimately how this is a picture of the kingdom, that who is on the throne and who is in the dungeon really has very little to do with who is righteous 
and very little to do with who has the kind of authority and power and strength in the economy of God's kingdom. And what we see also is that John ultimately held his commission above his life. Remember, the context of this is Christ sending out his apostles. This is what we saw earlier in chapter 6. Christ sending out his apostles. They are going out to do these things, but what we see here is an example of what happens if you do these things. Does this happen to everybody? No, but again, this is outside of the canon of Scripture, but through tradition we know that 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. So, statistically, what happened to John is the kind of thing that happened to those who were following Christ in the first century, those that were closest to him. He held his commission above his life. You almost have this picture of Herod Antipas saying, hey, you know, if you, if you chill out on this whole marriage thing, you know, you could probably hang out with us and have, have dinner with us. Like, I won't have to come down here to the prison. You can come up. You say you're sorry to Herodias. It'll take a while, but she'll be okay. And you can stay up here. The food's great. The wine's amazing. There's dancing. And John says, that sounds great. But you and Herodias got to get this thing figured out. And Herod's just like, just please stop it with the repentance talk. And John knows what happens to enemies of the crown. He's not a foolish man. But John did it anyway. He held his commission above his life. He was obedient to his calling. And the thing that, looks, that, that we see here, and the thing that we see when everyone's in prison, when, when Joseph is in prison at the end of Genesis, when, uh, when Isaiah is cast into a cistern, when, when John is in prison, when Peter and Paul are in prison, when all these people are in prison, it looks like the situation is hopeless. It seems like they lost control. But what we have to remember is that in John's life, in any prisoner in Scripture's life, in any prisoner in, in, in our lives... It seems like we lose control, but God is in control. God had a plan. God used this. God, God has this as an example to encourage us that, that John is pictured as a strong, steadfast testimony for the truth of God's law and the message of repentance and the message of the coming Messiah, irrespective of the circumstances that he's in. God had a plan. God was in control. Ambrose, a church father, wrote this about this moment as he was commenting on Mark chapter 6. He said, Behold those eyes, even in death, the witnesses of your crime, turning away from the sight of the delicacies. The eyes are closing, not so much owing to death as to the horror of luxury. That bloodless golden mouth, whose sentence you could not endure, is silent, and yet you fear. Yet the tongue, which even after death is wont to observe its duty as when living, condemned, though with trembling motion, the incest. John the Baptist, head on a platter, in the middle of this feast, was still preaching. His testimony was strong. His testimony is sure. And we have this example down throughout the ages, the, 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 the examples of, of, again, reformers and Puritans and men in the Middle Ages and 2,000 years of church history is remarkable. Thinking of Ridley and Lattimore saying, play the man for today we're going to light a fire in Europe that will, or in, in England. Example of Wycliffe, the example of Huss, the example of all the Marian martyrs, all of these people that saw their commission as greater than their life, knowing that when they spoke against the magistrate or the governor for the sake of righteousness, that they were effectively writing their own death sentence. But they knew that God was in control. And they knew that the gospel was bigger than a man, was bigger than a church, was bigger than a movement. It was Christ's church that was, will, and will continue to grow, expand, such that the, hell, the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. John is an example of obedience. Verse 30, 
the end of this text says, and the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. The apostles returned from their journey, we saw that in verses 7 through 13, in the shadow of John's death. This is intended to, to have this kind of impact where they get sent off and they're ministering and they're performing these miracles. But while this is happening in the background, this bad thing is happening to John. Although these 12 apostles are having what seems to be a successful ministry, there's another side to this. There's a consequence to it. It's not all good and great. There's also painful things that are occurring. I think this reminds us once again, as I mentioned already, that we live our lives today on ground gained by the blood of innumerable martyrs. The fact that we have Scripture in enough translations that we argue about them, enough different typesets and page, and, and, and page numbering systems and, and red letters and black letters that we, that, that, that we have our choice. That is something that was accomplished on the blood of men and women. The fact that we meet here, that we can advertise, was something that was won not simply because this is the way that it is, but because men and women, faithful to their calling, said things and did things, even to the point of death. John is an example of obedience. And the commissioning that the apostles received early on in the ministry, it's being made very clear in the Gospel of Mark that this kind of thing that happened to John is potentially the, in, the, the inevitable consequence for being faithful to the commissioning that is given. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, it is great, but we have to remember that immediately following that is the book of Acts and great persecution, and leading up to 70 AD, it, much death and much pain. So questions that we have to ask ourselves. And these are questions that, again, we have to ask ourselves knowing that at least today, by God's grace, it is not at the end of the sword or the end of a rifle that we do what we do, but it is at the end of relationship, the end of social standing, the end of how we are when we walk by the water cooler and people are in conversation. Do we love comfort more than consequence? Do we love comfort more than consequence? Do we like it to be easy, or do we like it to be right? At the end of the day, are we content with things being the status quo, or us doing what we are called to do in that moment, to say that one thing that might be slightly uncomfortable, that might be slightly awkward, but is done for righteousness' sake. Not to be a jerk, not to simply stir the pot, but because we are wise as serpents and innocent as doves, full of grace and full of truth, and because we are in his word and because we are in fellowship with each other and because we are in prayer, that when something is given to us as an opportunity, that we have the fortitude to say something. Or we just let it pass by because we want to avoid the awkward. Do you love comfort more than consequence? Secondly, as a church, are we ready to be examples to our children? That's one of the things that we, we always talk about. Do we, what do we want our children to do? How do we want our children to live? And, and not just our children, but the rest of the children in, in, our, in our church. Do we want to show them that we're in the business of doing hard things? Do we want to show them that we are in the business of doing what needs to be done, regardless of the cost? It's very easy to say that there's this small chore, this small task in the home. You want to do something else because it's easier, but this is the right thing to do. It's another thing to, 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 for us to illustrate that in our lives, in the public square, or in our neighborhood. Are we ready to be examples to our children? Would a, would, a, would a spoken and preached morality have a greater life impact on our children and our children's children or an actually lived morality? One that has consequence, one that has a, a palpable difficulty that needs to be worked through and worked through as a family and worked through as a church community and done so that others may see. Are we ready to be examples for other churches? 
Are we ready, ready to do these things regardless of the cost? Not because there's anything inherently special about Christ's covenant, but because we have an opportunity. Are we ready to do something and be an encouragement to each other and to other Christians? And then thirdly, are we prepared? What I'm not saying is that we say, what's going on in in Chester? What's going on in Rockingham County? What's going on in New Hampshire and New England and the United States? we, we, We Google it after service and we just march there with torches to say, hey, let's do this. It's not what we're... I, no torches. No torches. Are we prepared? Are we bathing ourselves in Scripture so that we are reminded? No torches. Innocent as doves. Are we bathing ourselves in Scripture so that we know? We, we, we are not simply to, to, to be the clanging symbol, but we're supposed to be filled with love and with truth. Are we prepared in Scripture, prayer, and reliance upon each other, not relying upon social media, not relying upon the, the prevailing winds of our culture, not reliant upon our courage that comes from ourselves, but about our courage that comes from Christ and each other and the church that Christ has given us, his body. When we work as lone wolves, we are not working in the way that we're intended. Remember, Jesus sent his apostles off in pairs. I think that was for a reason. So church, John made an impact. John preached repentance, and John is an example of obedience. But he was one who was prepared. He was one who was ready. His life was a lifestyle of discomfort. So whether it be in the wilderness or whether it be in a jail cell, It was a life that was prepared for doing hard things. We may not be called to wear camel skin and eat locust. We're probably okay with organic wild honey, but the other things are things that we might not necessarily be called to. But are we ready when that difficult conversation is in front of us? Puritan William Grinnell wrote this. He said, That soul is sure to fall short of home, he means heaven, who has nothing but a carnal confidence on the name of God, blown up by the ignorance of God and of himself. So he's saying, you can't just know concepts. You can't just have a couple of verses that you're ready to rattle off. It says, no, he would have his confidence duly placed on the power of God, must conscientiously use the means appointed for his defense and not rush naked into the battle. God has given us what we need for the difficult things, for the difficult conversations with our children, for the difficult conversations with our neighbors, for the difficult conversations with the magistrate if it comes to that. We can't just do it in a foolhardy way. We do it wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We do it in prayer. We do it in preparation with each other. And the most poignant and pertinent example that we have of preparation is this table that's set before us. The Lord's table is a preparatory meal. You think about the fact that when it was instituted, it was done in a preparatory manner for the great difficulty that Christ was about to endure and the difficulty the apostles were about to go through. I don't want to make too big of a deal about it, but Peter, in taking the Lord's Supper, had everything he needed to be faithful to Christ. But in his weakness, he denied him. Of course, because of Christ's loving kindness, he was restored. But we see in that, and we see in all these examples of how we ought to be prepared, how John had a life that was prepared for difficult things, how God has given us, as I just read, the means appointed for our defense. And this is one of them. This is the kind of meal that you need to ingest prior to going out and saying hard things. Inasmuch as an athlete takes in the necessary carbohydrates and electrolytes for exerting him or herself, we take this in as spiritual food and spiritual drink so that when we go out to say hard things or even in preparation to think hard things, that we do this knowing that it has been given to us by Christ so that he will be with us. Not in any sort of nutrient sense, but in a spiritual sense where he is spiritually present with us 
as we receive this meal and we do so in faith. This meal ought to be on our lips and on our tongues tomorrow as we have this potentially difficult conversation. It ought to be stirring in our, in, in our stomachs as we, or we try to muster up the fortitude later this week when these situations do inevitably come. This meal is for that purpose. And so consequently, because it's for that purpose, it is for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, this meal is for you. If, it is, if you are not in Christ, it actually becomes a meal of condemnation, a meal of judgment. But we have a better hope for you, hope that you are in Christ, that this shed blood of Christ and this message of repentance and faith is a message that, 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 that it does characterize you. And if that is the case, then we welcome you to his table. It's not our table. It's Christ's table. So come and receive these elements. Use these means of grace in the way that Christ intended. And do so with hearts prepared for whatever may come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the supper. We thank you for the opportunity for preparation. We know that we were sent out that you called us out, not to be frozen in the pew, not to, to simply be enthusiastic on Sundays, but you called us out of darkness into light, a light that may be magnified and illuminated ever so brightly on Sunday mornings, but a light that transcends our work schedule, our life obligations it's a light that bathes every step we take and every word we say. So Lord, we, we appreciate and we thank you for this example of your servant, John the Baptist. What high praise given to him by your son. But Christ also said in Matthew chapter 11 that anyone in the kingdom is as great as John the Baptist. And the reason for that is the indwelling spirit that you give us, your spirit. So Lord, this morning, let us lean into him so greatly, knowing that anything that we do is only accomplished because of his illuminating your word, because of his spurring us on to good things, his gifting of spiritual gifts, but first and foremost, of that regeneration, taking us from death unto life. Lead us, Lord, in your spirit regardless of what the circumstances may be. Allow us to be faithful in plenty. Allow us to be faithful in want. We know we can do that as individuals, as families, as a church, because we are your body, the body of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.